0: You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference With us, Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics, that's me. So Federal Express forever changed how we get stuff, even though its founder failed his thesis presenting the idea because it was too crazy. Herb Kelleher here in Texas wouldn't have been sued into oblivion had he not been a lawyer and fought the bigs himself, so he kept Southwest Airlines afloat by his legal skills. Both are leaders in their industry and had to fight giant monoliths, and last year FedEx netted about as much as the post office lost. Today's guest and this show invites guests who we believe are the future of healthcare. They are disruptive and considered annoying troublemakers to the bigs they may replace someday. Entrenched bureaucracy, like the post office, like big airlines, or like our world of big health care, are all about stacking the game in their favor, preserving the status quo. And even though healthcare in America presents about half our workers with deductibles higher than their savings, and two-thirds have no retirement plan because of the health care spend, and almost half of Americans have given up their hope to own a home because of the health care spend, the very American dream, because this health care spend is eating up their potential housing and savings budgets, and their ability to send their kids to good schools. Education budgets even at school districts levels, at counties, cities, states, are eaten alive by inefficient healthcare costs. And the same for our federal budget, which overspends almost exactly what our healthcare waste estimates are, about a hundred billion a month. Today's guest is a warrior in the fight to expose you to solutions, not just the problems. There's a lot of podcasts that talk about what's wrong with healthcare, Michael Maneri will talk to you about what's being fixed in healthcare, just like this podcast. He's a senior VP and benefits consultant with Alliance Insurance Services and is a partner in their employee benefits practice. Michael works with a large variety of contracts, anywhere from a few hundred all the way up to 20,000 employees. He has a passion for helping businesses find alternatives to the usual health ho hum strategies that simply resulted in ever higher cost for the spend in the healthcare benefit. He's not that guy so prevalent in his industry. He also loves to educate employers and employees on the misaligned and perverse incentives that exist in healthcare delivery and its slobby bloated payment system. And Michael simplifies this complex insurance buying process, all about lowering costs, saving serious money, and improving outcomes for employees. That's what Michael's all about. I discovered him in his podcast, Reconstructing Healthcare, which explores not only what is wrong with the current healthcare system, but it also examines what's driving the prices higher in healthcare costs and exposes the deficiencies in the traditional insurance products and the misalignments. He likes to interview companies like we do on this show that are providing innovative services and solutions designed not only to disrupt the health insurance marketplace, but healthcare itself. So I'm going to send you to reconstructing healthcare's website. It's www.reconstructinghealthcare.com. And um, Michael, thanks for joining us on the show. Hey, Ron, happy to be here. Great. Uh, truly, I don't miss any of your episodes. It's the only show I don't. And I'm saying that as Jeremy, my producer, listened on, who has several shows himself in healthcare. But uh, you've said on your show that traditional health insurance is a game and businesses are guaranteed to lose it. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, so so when I, when I talk about health insurance you know, being a game, that employers are guaranteed to lose. What I really mean is that if you're just buying off the shelf insurance products, HMOs, PPOs, high deductible health plans that are fully insured, you you're pretty much guaranteed to lose in the form of higher costs year over year. And 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 really that's because the insurance carriers, most of them are owned by owned by Wall Street, they really don't have any incentives to drive healthcare costs lower. I mean, they, they, the Affordable Care Act basically guaranteed them a, a you know, small profit margin um, that uh, is limited to about three to 4%. And so really the only way for them to make more money and drive higher earnings on Wall Street is, you know, small percentage on a bigger, uh, you know, pi- a bigger uh, amount. So that's what I mean when I say, you know, employers are really guaranteed to lose.
0: So utilities are the only industry I can think of that have that same bloated incentive. The bigger the utilities become, the more they get to bring to their bottom line, the more they get to pay their executives, et cetera. Yep. I can't think of any other industry really like insurance and utilities. Is there? They're sort of alone, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, if 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 I think about, if you think about our economy, um, you know, anywhere where there's a competitive marketplace and there's price transparency and and there's um, competition generally we see lower prices and improved value for the end user uh, and I think healthcare and really education are, are the two unique segments of the economy where you know uh, you can have increased technology and um, inefficiencies and we still see higher prices So let's talk about the bloated healthcare system I'm curious on your take
0: on this the, the studies I've seen that compare us to our peer countries say that it has nothing to do with fee-based versus value-based care it's not the model itself it has nothing to do with how long we're staying in hospitals or how much time we're spending with specialists versus pcps it's not the ratio of specialists to primary care docs it's not even it's not any of the common denominators you think that would cause our system to cost double that of switzerland our next competitor what it is actually it's the way we get paid in other words if you doctor patient relationship is the core of business of healthcare at PCP to doc exam there's right now 12 to 16 different tapeworms floating around that transaction that are living off of that transaction and the doctor's not one of the winners and the patient's not one of the winners so what the what the study concluded is it's how much administrative bloat we have in our system do you have a
1: different take on that um <clears throat> You know, I think that is one of the contributing factors. There's a ton of administrative uh, bloat, um, as you say, but I think there's there's a lot of things wrong w- with our healthcare system. And really, if you pull back, you know, the layers of the onion here, um, you know, our healthcare system, the delivery and payment system, it's actually designed for higher costs. It's really designed to fail. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the the money's going to a lot of the wrong places um, specifically you know we're not paying primary care uh, physicians enough um we're paying specialists too much and you know how we're paying people creates you know uh, misaligned incentives for for really the the wrong the wrong results and the wrong outcomes uh, but there's there's lots of of um I think there's lots of things that contribute to the problem, but I I do think that um, administration, uh, excessive administration is definitely one of them, for sure.
0: We have Allergy Services Company, and about once every 90 days, we get a kickback letter, a recoupment letter, and the average recoupment they're asking for is in the six figures. And what they say is, we want to get all of this data and all of these facts and all of these files, because really what they're telling us, and we've learned this over the years, is that they're saying they don't want to pay us under the prompt pay statutes of Texas which is 14 days or 30 days, depending on whether it's federal or commercial. Mm-hmm. Instead, what you're saying is, I want to pay you over three months because I'm going to, I want to make a name for myself by delaying or deferring or denying. We win them all. We, we, we're basically in the paper business. But one of our values as a company is to enjoy the ride. Enjoy, the, you know, enjoy this company. Enjoy what we're doing for our employees, our suppliers. our, our pay- It's not fun anymore. It's not fun anymore when you get these kind of letters that make you have to earn your, your living twice
1: yeah I, I think it's unfortunate um and it's too complex um i mean that's that's another one of the the challenges with healthcare is the complexity and the different layers and all of the the middlemen you know uh making money along the way but um you know i, I empathize with with your position um you know as a provider uh, because certainly you know, there, there's, there's too much complexity and, and uh, it doesn't allow, you know, doesn't allow you to focus on what you really should be doing, which is creating value for the end user. So you talk to a lot of interesting people on your show, Michael. Do you have anybody that
0: comes to mind when I say um, they are bringing the cost of healthcare down? They're bringing the cost of not only healthcare but also the insurance products that are the benefits they're buying. What types of companies would you just sort of generally say are doing a good job of that?
1: So, I, I think there's a movement in the industry to um, to drive more transparency um, for for costs and to help payers. And when I say payers, I'm really talking about employers. Uh, to help employers, you know really get a better handle on you know how to how to drive their employees to high value sites of care where you know the cost is appropriate. And um, and the quality is good, and so as far as you know, companies out there that I think are are doing a good job, um, I'll start with I guess um, the pharmacy aspect of it. I think EHIM is a is a PBM that's doing good work in the marketplace because they they do not take rebates from the drug manufacturers, which are essentially bribes to place really low value, really in really expensive drugs on a formulary. And the fact that they refuse, they're one of the few in the industry that refuse to take rebates from drug manufacturers um, really allows them to work in the best interest of, of their clients, you know, which is employers and helping them control costs. And so I think that's, that's one example. So let
0: me, let me interrupt you and say that I've seen some of their spreadsheets and it looks like they're charging pennies per pill versus dollars per pill. It's a, that much of a difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, they, they the traditional PBMs, I mean, they make a spread on every single drug that gets, you know, processed, and um, it's a huge. If you look at the profit margin of the PBMs, I mean, it's 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 just ridiculous. Um, and um, a company like EHIM is charging an administrative fee. It's transparent. There's no hidden revenue streams, and and they're truly working you know, they have an aligned interest in helping their clients, you know, lower costs. And I think that's one of the biggest things that needs to be fixed is that there's so many misaligned incentives where people, companies are rewarded when healthcare costs go up. And we need to flip that on its head. We, we need to reward employees. We need to reward uh, companies for helping to drive healthier outcomes and to help lower costs for the payer. Because right now we have an affordability problem. and you know, you can't, it's just going to get worse unless we, we focus on identifying and reversing those misaligned incentives. Okay. I want to stay on this track of naming names. The uh, right
0: now, pharma is under 8% of the total spend of healthcare, but hospitals are about 40% of the cost of healthcare. What are you looking at for people that are bringing, doing a job of transparency and uh, reference-based pricing for surgeries? Who do you like out
1: there that you've talked to? So I think there's a number of good uh, companies doing good work in the space. Um, you know, reference-based pricing is 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 really, you know, for an employer, it's instead of the employer being subject to you know the, the extraordinary price variation that exists behind a, a provider network, they're saying, yeah, we're going to set the rates of reimbursement um, as a multiple of Medicare and have complete control, you know, over what they're going to pay providers. Um, and you know, a company like HST, who I've interviewed on my podcast, um, I think they do a good job in the space uh, because they're they're focused on uh, you know customer service for the employees, and, and really, you know, ensuring that you know hospitals know upfront you know what the employer is going to reimburse for a particular procedure, and 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 if the hospital doesn't want to you know accept it, you know they'll work with the the patient or the employee to find another facility that's willing to accept the reimbursement. Um, so I think I think they do a good job. There's there's a number of other companies out there that are focused on you know developing um, fixed transparent pricing uh, with facilities and in ambulatory surgical centers. Uh, we've we've inter- uh, interviewed a number of them on the show, including Caram Health, um, and um, uh, I'm just about to post an interview with Amps, which which does that as well. So uh, those are those are good companies, you know, focusing on you know value-based reimbursement as opposed to the network discount model, which actually enables you know a lot of the inflation that we see.
0: Okay, so now we're talking about imaging. What companies are in that space? That are worth
1: uh, self insureds talking to? So as far as imaging, I don't know that um, there's a particular you know third party that um, you know is is focused on. Um, I I guess, you know, transparent pricing out there. But here's what I will tell you. One of the tools that we're implementing with a number of our uh, employer clients is a tool called Amino. And Amino is, um, it's a mobile application and it's an, uh, essentially it's a navigation and price transparency tool. And what it does is, you know, it helps um, employees um, know where to go to get a high value, you know, service. And so I'll use the example of, of my wife. You know, a couple of weeks ago, she was told she needed an MRI and she was going to go to a place that the specialist referred her to. Um, and, you know, before she went, I said, hold on, let me check on what the cost is going to be. It's going to cost over $3,000 for a pretty simple abdominal MRI. And so I was able to use a tool that we have available for, through our company and find another imaging center that was two blocks away that charged $800 for the same um, MRI. So I, I think, you know, it's imperative for any employer who's trying to control costs. They have to put good tools in the hands of their employees um, and or provide some sort of a navigation or concierge service to help steer them to lower cost options within the network.
0: Yeah, there's lots of good ones out there. I agree with you. Um, so let's talk about so they're, you're basically describing like a good Rx but for surgery or imaging. So you yes. have some kind of on your phone and that helps direct you to the right location so you're that's not buying right. too high a price that's right and then there's also these new uh, bidding sites like medibid do you have a uh, a feel for people that are doing a good job in that that are basically putting
1: it into a uh, almost like an auction marketplace yeah i i don't um i don't have a lot of insight into those types of services but um i do like the idea of it i mean you know hey if if it's a market where you know there's uh A significant number of options you know I like the idea of having uh, providers be able to you know bid on you know that service I mean that creates competition um, which is good for any marketplace and and quite frankly doesn't exist in in any of the traditional insurance products. Okay Um, well so basically it looks like technology and
0: entrepreneurs are popping up with solutions that are solving a lot of these seemingly irreversible cost increases because Everything we just talked about does nothing but bring the cost down for the employer and for the employee, and frankly, it gives the doctor a little more stability in their income too. They're not having to rely on uncertain uh, sources for their referrals.
1: Yeah, and and I think there there are there are lots of tools to help um, eliminate waste, if you will. I think that's really what we've been talking about here is is to eliminate you know the waste and the price variation. But I think you know when when it comes to you know thinking of a holistic approach to lowering healthcare care costs you you can't not you can't forget to think about how do you help your employees that have are living and trying to manage you know chronic disease and illness burdens and the other thing you have to think about is primary care I think primary care can you know if delivered in the right way can you know is is the ultimate secret weapon to lowering health care costs uh, we've had a number of of um Companies on my show that offer, you know, virtual primary care or even on-site clinics, talk about the fact that, you know, in in the traditional model that we have, you know, primary care has been marginalized, and you know, oftentimes you you have patient panels that are are really too big to actually be be able to deliver, you know, good care, uh, let alone the, the social support needed to, you know, you know manage, you know, a lot of these conditions. And so um, I would just encourage employers who are focused on managing their costs to to also, you know, think about, you know, how to, to, how, how to either work with directly with providers or, or other, other solutions to enhance the primary care that their employees are, are getting. And then be sure to focus on on those living with, you know, chronic disease burdens and try to figure out, you know, how to help them as well.
0: You know, right after I listened to your, my favorite show of yours was a gentleman that was the CEO of 98.6, which is a venture-funded virtual care, is exactly what you're describing. And I mean, it's just such exciting uh, numbers in terms of how low the cost is to engage the employer and the employee, it's ridiculous, but um, he's building a national platform. And I brought that platform up. I was next to a guy who's a senior strategy guy with HCA and I brought it up and I said, what do you think of that idea? And he says, we're not finding the patients want to engage with their phone. They want to engage with a doctor with a name. So, you know, he's an older guy. Maybe he's not, if he was a millennial, it would have been a different answer. But um, right now direct, uh, well, let's call it telehealth, if you will, is only 1% adoption rate among patients. And it's, you know, it's the millennials that are adopting, but it's a very slow adoption rate. And it's been barely trickling up over the years?
1: You know, I, I think it is trickling up more, um, you know, especially for people who are educated on on how to use it and when to use it. Um, you know, I have a virtual, virtual primary care physician. Um, you know, I'm based on the West Coast and, and my virtual primary care physician is in New York City. Um, I have no problem accessing her and getting uh, referrals um, or medications uh, prescribed, but th- there's a learning curve to it. But I also think, look, there's there's value in in having, you know, a local relationship. I just think that the virtual care options are a result of the fact that it's hard to get in to see people, and even when you do get in to see people, you only get ten minutes of their time. It and I mean that's that's not great care. So so I think it's it's a reaction to try to you know deliver better access and and you know, allow people to um, you know interact with the physician when they when they just have questions that that need to be answered. Um, so I think we'll see an uptick in that. But we're also seeing, I think, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of the you know um, a lot of the the companies out there um, and evangelists on the direct primary care marketplace. And I think that's that's phenomenal for patients. Um, it's a it's a better payment model, I think, for primary care physicians. Um, and I think it's it's something that uh, you know hopefully we see expand. Look, I um, I've interviewed
0: four of their thought leaders. I, I completely misunderstood what it was all about. I thought it was for rich people, and then I talked to uh, Paul over at Plum Health, and Paul woke me up to the fact that uh, no direct primary care is actually only ten dollars a month in Kansas City at the Atlas MD clinic, and it goes up to fifty for the mom and you know seventy five for the for the for the employer or employee. And then I started talking to Clint again and instead of going after social media and business to consumer, he's gone after businesses, and he's got 80% of his patients, and he's got the largest patient in the cohort in the country, are employer. They work for employers. So that they are now, instead of in some high-deductible plan where they can't afford to actually write a check for the uh, use of the plan, they have, you know, for 70 bucks a month, the company's picking it up. They can go see their direct primary care doctor that's in their neighborhood. who works basically for their company. They have a telephone, email, phone. They can reach them, uh, you know, by text. And I got to tell you, I'm, I don't see a model better than direct primary care for uh, specifically targeted employers.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree, I, and I think, um, you know, depending on it's it's not available everywhere, um, and. But I do think it is, it's is—it's a great model, and I think, um, you know, there's a lot of benefits in the fact that patients get to spend more time with the physician who can actually focus on, um, you know, helping a patient manage any of their conditions. And ultimately, you know, it reduces you know, downstream costs. It reduces unnecessary visits to the ER, unnecessary surgeries, unnecessary specialist visits, because the primary care physician actually has time to spend with their patient. Which you know, in in most um, in the traditional model, that doesn't exist. Yeah,
0: my my interviews it turns out are averaging about six patients a day is what they're saying on a typical day. Six patients a day. Can you imagine that? Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. So yeah, we're we're both. I think I can clearly see we could talk a lot longer than half an hour because I have a bunch of more questions for you. But right now, the high deductible plan seems to be the go to solution. What types of plans are you bringing? your customers that are uh, an alternative to the traditional
1: here's your six or eight or nine percent increase yeah so i I think i'm glad you mentioned that i think our industry has really done a disservice by promoting high deductible health plans you know as as a solution because what what happens is if you're working with a blue with with a white collar company where you know they, they have higher earning power okay the high deductible health plan might be okay because they can actually afford you know, the three or $4,000 family deductible, but implementing a high deductible health plan with, you know, any sort of employer where they have a, a blue collar workforce that, that is, is really, you know, uh, lower paid. I mean, you're basically telling them before you can get any care, with the exception of, of a preventive care visit, you know, you gotta pay three or $4,000. Well, guess what? They're just gonna forego care because they can't afford it. They don't, have, they don't have any savings for that. So I think we've done a disservice in a lot of ways in, in pushing high deductible health plans. Uh, I think the better way to do it is to to structure a plan where you make your employees partners in reducing the cost of healthcare. And so what I mean by that is having financial incentives to choose the high value option within the network. So if you're giving them a tool and let's go back to the MRI example, right? There's There's an on one corner, you've got an MRI, uh, that's 3000 and on another corner, a block away, it's $800. Well, how do you incentivize the, the employee or the patient to go to the $800 one? Because, you know, in that case, you're saving $2,200 as a health plan. Well, why not waive the copay altogether? Or if you have a health reimbursement account, give them a percentage of the savings, you know, give them 50 bucks. Hey, you just saved this $2,200, thank you. Here's $50 in your health reimbursement account. Ultimately, I think that's the type of plan that you know, we should be focusing on because then your employees are partners. You, you've engaged them, you educate them, and everyone's on the same page. Hey, if we want to keep our health care costs down, we got to work together. That's, that's what I, the direction I think we need to go in.
0: So Again, goes, costs go down when you have more primary care visits with your DPC. Costs go down when you have incentives aligned with your employer to get your uh, better cost MRI. And there's probably dozens of examples like that in the plans you present. So what we'll talk more about that in the future because that's a big topic. But tell me what you think about health savings accounts. Are they the panacea to uh, solve big problems or are they just a tool?
1: No, they're, they're just a tool. And again, you can't have a health savings account unless it's paired with that high deductible health plan. So, you know, on its own, you know, sure, you can reduce your taxable income, and um, you know help fund that high deductible plan, but for your average American they're not they're not going to fund the health savings account and without the right tools to you know choose high value options within the network, um, you know you're, you're kind of you know leaving them stranded in the wilderness out there. so no, I don't think health savings account or are, are, are the panacea or the solution. Um, I think it can be one component, but you know, it's not dealing with any of the root causes. And that's the that is that's one of the biggest problems with a lot of the solutions that are put out there. They're they're meant to solve or address things on the surface. And then and we and we have to get to a point where we start looking at what's the actual root cause that drives all the different issues in healthcare and systematically target those root causes. That's what employers need to be doing. So do you feel, Michael,
0: that folks at Alliance that you work with, I mean, you're a partner in the employer benefits uh, department division. Do you feel like their brokers are starting to wake up to realize they could get displaced by others that are more creative like you if they're not awake?
1: Um, I think it's, uh, they think it's a grassroots movement across the country. I think uh, there are plenty of brokers who are, you know, um, invested in the status quo. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about broker compensation, and and uh, you know, if if a broker's on commission, and you know your premiums go up 10% a year, well, guess what? They got a 10% raise. So, you know, I think there's there's a grassroots movement to, you know, adju- address that misaligned incentive and move to more fee-based brokerage and consulting services uh, that's transparent to the customer, and um, you know, ensures that you know there there are no uh, misaligned incentives like that commission example I just gave you. So it it's um it's a slow process, you know, but I think more and more people are being educated to the fact that, you know, traditional insurance is really not structured to do anything but go up. So if I'm an employer and I have two to five hundred
0: employees and I want to find a Michael Maneri out there, how do I find you or somebody that is incented in my direction as opposed to the uh, insurance company status
1: quo? Um, you know, I, I think there's lots of uh, you know great uh, people out there, um, you know, doing good work. Um, you know, the uh, the Health Rosetta, which which Dave Chase uh, sponsors, um, you know, has a list of brokers in in, in different parts of the country. Um, and I think it's just a matter of asking them how you know how are you compensated and and what are you doing to help you know lower your your clients' healthcare costs. And you know, anybody who anybody who points to Health savings accounts, and that's it I, I really think you got to be wary of. You, in order to to make this work, you have to look at self-funding solutions because that that's the only way that you can you know pull unbundle the various components um, of healthcare administration and re, and correct some of the misaligned incentives. So, I mean, I think employers should be looking at, at a broker who's willing to work on a transparent you know, fee basis and who's focused on alternative funding or self-funded uh, approaches.
0: So the more I listen to your show and listen to the language you use with others in your space, um, the more insecure I feel as a small employer. Is there anybody out there talking about self-funding for the under 500 employee companies, the smaller guys who really are the bulk of American employers?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And actually, let me just give you an example. So we recently met with an employer that had a uh, hundred employees and they had 73 participating on their plan and they were in the fully insured marketplace. And, you know, we, we educated them that, look, you can still self-fund if you have 73 employees. Uh, we looked at using a, a stop loss captive to provide uh, protection against uh, large catastrophic claims. And, um, some, some overall protection from you know uh, expected claims being you know greater than expected and you know we're we're looking at uh, different uh, tools to help them you know uh, drive their employees to cost effective options within, within the network but it's not impossible you know if you're if you have you know 20 employees 50 100 200 um you should still be considering um you know self- insurance for sure because no, i think I think the fear
0: right now is that well, Bertha over there is pretty heavy set, and she does our accounting for the last twenty years, and she could have a stroke or a heart attack tomorrow, or cancer tomorrow, and I can't afford that. And they don't—I don't, don't think—they see the numbers are tiny, tiny percentage of your two or five hundred employees are actually going to have a catastrophic, catastrophic, event. And there's ways to insure against that, aren't there?
1: That's it. It's called risk mitigation, and you know what we do is based on the employer size. I mean, we're, we, we work with the um stop-loss market to set the, we'll call it the the individual deductible, right? That's what the employer is going to be taking risk on. So, look, if if you're a hundred employees, or let's go even smaller, let's say you're fifty employees, the the most you would be at risk for Bertha, who's a little heavy, and you think she's going to have a heart attack. Well, you know, maybe the stop-loss deductible is set at twenty thousand. So if she does go into the hospital and it is a hundred thousand dollar bill, you're not liable for the whole thing. You know, you're going to be liable for you know a portion. But we've we've implemented a solution to transfer some of that risk away, and um, and that's I mean that's basic to to self funding is you know implementing the the right um, risk transfer uh, and risk mit- mitigation you know practices. So I would I would enc- I would encourage employers of all sizes you know talk to somebody um about self-funding and and looking at what your alternatives are to just buying an off-the-shelf product
0: yeah and i think i'm my dpc doctors that listen to the show are going to say and get her kind
1: of come see me and i'll get her on a chronic care plan so she never has that heart attack that's right that's 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 exactly right it's exactly right and and again this is where i think primary care plays a bigger role right so if Mm -hmm. if you're smaller and you want to self-fund uh, one of the biggest things that you should be focused on is all right how do I keep people out of the hospital how do I make sure that they get the resources to you know manage their chronic conditions and there's a yeah. lot of great point solutions out there that are focused on um, you know those those people with diabetes I mean there's programs out there that are helping people reverse type 2 diabetes mm-hmm. for diet nutrition yes
0: well um- so let's talk a little bit about uh, my favorite quote that I've gotten this past year from doing this now, 42 interviews, is from Keith Smith of Surgery Centers of Oklahoma, who you've interviewed. And Keith says, Why should we trust the guy driving the getaway car to solve the heist? So he's saying Washington is never going to be a solution. And when you look at the over half a billion, I'm sorry, half a trillion that's, no, it's half a billion that's spent every year with lobbies that are in big healthcare, there's, also, there's almost no way you can not shake that money tree and get elected. So if you're a congressman, either on a state or federal level, senator, you cannot fight big healthcare and expect to win your election. It's just almost that simple. And mm-hmm. I guess they want us to all believe that. So do you, do you ever see any Washington-based solutions being the answer to this uh, gigantic hot mess called
1: healthcare in America? No, no. And, and here's what, there's just too much money. If you look at the the top, um lobby, as far as dollars contributed towards politicians, guess what it is? Uh, big pharma. It's big pharma big, and, and big healthcare, right? Insurance companies, yeah. pharma, yeah. And, and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Think about that. Hospitals. Yes. How do yeah. hospitals have money to be lobbying? Well, guess what? They do, and they spend a lot.
0: Yeah. I, I, I was on Josh Luke's show, and he said, yeah, and doctors, too, and I went, Josh they're not even at the big boy table at Thanksgiving. If you look at who's funding big healthcare, physicians aren't even on the map. The, uh, no. the money spent on dark money and light money is about a billion a year. And that money is buying, that's literally just half of that number outspends Wall Street and big tech and big defense and big oil combined. So the big, the next four biggest lobbies combined aren't even close to healthcare.
1: No. And, and, and this is really why we're not going to see a government solution, and employers, they simply cannot be complacent uh, and, and rely on either the government or, you know traditional insurance carriers to come save the day. They're not coming. You know it's, it's, up, it's up to us as, as employers, brokers and consultants and providers uh, like yourself, we're the ones who have to figure out the solutions because if we don't, nobody will. You know, it it sounds almost like Debbie Downer to say the government's
0: not going to rescue us, but it's actually reality. Let's end this on a positive note. You and I get to interview disruptors every week, and we get to talk to people that are making enormous impacts. And just like Federal Express was non, a non-existent company in the mid '70s and turned into a behemoth and a game changer for a bureaucracy, an entrenched, bloated bureaucracy, Southwest Airlines did the exact same thing. Do you have a positive?
1: vibe and outlook towards the future based on the people you're interviewing. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm more optimistic now than I ever have been because there's so many people, so many companies out there focused on solving small problems within healthcare. And and you know what? Over time that's going to add up. You know, over time, you know, we're, we're going to see healthcare costs come down. Um, as you know, more of these innovators grow and you know, their impact, um, you know, is spread. And so it, it's interesting. It's easy to be negative when you talk about, you know some of the statistics and all the lobbying money but the more people I interview, um, the more optimistic I get that, um, you know this isn't, this isn't a problem we can't fix. We are hundred percent capable of fixing this
0: problem. Yeah, there, there are people out there right now doing it, and I love it that you and I are out there spreading the word, and I appreciate another brother-in-arms doing what you do, and I just encourage you. Your interviews, as I said earlier, I think are the best interviews out there. You're just getting to the root of the matter. I don't know how much research you're doing for these, but you're. Uh, I just love the guests you're bringing on, love the way you're going in deep with them and not uh, letting them off the hook with you know
1: softballs. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh... You know, it's uh, it's a passion project of mine, and and look, you know, it's what I like to do is I like to educate people and help employers, you know, deliver better benefits at lower cost for their employees. And um, if if the podcast is a way for me to get that message out to more people, um, you know, then then I'm happy to do it. Um, let's talk about how folks can reach you, and then I have one hardball question for you after that. Yeah, sure. So uh, folks can reach me. They can find me on LinkedIn. They can uh, reach out to me on my uh, podcast website, www.reconstructinghealthcare.com, or my email direct, uh, which is M and my last name, Mineri, M E N E R E Y, at Alliant.com. Yes. Um,
0: uh, The hardball question isn't really, it's just a fake head (laughs) fake. The question is if you could fly a banner over America, with a single message for employers, what would that say?
1: Oh, geez. Uh, <laughs> I, think it, <laughs> I, I think it would say, wake up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because empl- employers are the sleeping giant out there. I mean, employers pay for 50% of, of healthcare. And, and unfortunately what's happened is that, you know they've just gone to sleep. And, and, and delegated the responsibility of, of uh, you know, paying and providing health care to others, which has led to bad results. And so I think once employers wake up and truly understand um, that a lot of the insurance companies that they're working with do not have their, their best interests in mind um, and understand the, the misaligned incentives that exist out there. I mean, I think, you know, employers can do great things, um, but, uh, but right now a lot of them are asleep. So,
0: Michael, I'm going to uh, violate my principle and close the interview because I have one last question that this brings up. Do you feel like you're under pressure by sticking your neck out and saying things like this in public? Because it's pretty unusual for a guy to uh, basically uh, diss the people that are buttering his bread, if you will.
1: <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't. Um, I mean, look, we have clients that are self-funded. We have clients that are fully insured because no matter what we say, we can't convince them to do otherwise. Um, and so as a broker we have to have relationships with everybody in the marketplace um but look if, if you don't speak out on what you know then ultimately I'd be a part of the problem and uh after being in this industry long enough you know I feel like I know too much and and if I if I didn't speak up I would be I would be just as big of um you know, complicit. I would be complicit in the problem if I didn't speak up, and I don't want to. Be, I don't want to be that.
0: What a great way to close the show, Michael. We'll do this again. I really love this interview, and can't wait
1: to talk to you again soon. All right. Thank you, Ron, for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review it helps our megaphone more than you know until next episode